0: Shalom mishpucha, shalom family. Mishpucha is a Hebrew word. It means family. And we're the mishpucha, the family with the Jewish heart, made up of Jewish and non-Jewish people. We're the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. It's finally come down to form what Paul called one new man, one new humanity. And according to the second chapter of Ephesians, Paul says this is going to make a full dwelling place for the Spirit of God. Getting ready, Mishpochah, to blow the grandest shofar, oh, the grandest trumpet in Zion? We want everyone everywhere to hear the good news. We want everyone everywhere to be red hot for the Messiah. As a matter of fact, if you're not red hot for the Messiah, you're actually in reverse. Neutral is reverse. You're going the wrong way. There's only one gear in the kingdom of heaven, from glory to glory. And I have to tell you, I I love all the guests that I have, all the information that they present to you. But there's something special about my next guest. It is going wherever you are in your walk, in your adventure, in your search for God, wherever you are, it's going to dramatically change some of your paradigms on what happens when you die. In fact, I want to ask you a question. Do you have a fear of death? Even if you're born again, you know you're going to have it. Do you have a degree of a fear of death? I mean, let's face it. It's an unknown. Most people are fearful uh, as to the process and and things like that. But I'm going to tell you something. After you finish hearing my guest, Dr. Reggie Anderson, he's a medical doctor, award-winning medical doctor. He's going to totally demystify death to the point where I'm going to get a little ahead of myself. Um, Dr. Anderson, are you afraid of dying? Not at all, Sid.
1: I am actually looking forward to it.
0: Now, how much are you looking forward to it? I mean, those are words, but what does that really mean?
1: Well, I know for a fact that after being with hundreds of people that have crossed through the veil, that that last moment, that last breath here on earth is our first breath in glory. It's our first breath in our forever home. And I really, with my experiences, I cannot wait for my own first breath in heaven.
0: And to me, that should be Normal, but it isn't. By the time they finish listening to us, it's going to be normal for them. Well, let, let, let's uh, just kind of uh, go back in the history of how you got to where you got to. Uh, and uh, you went to a family where you were in church every time the doors were open. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, a- as a young boy, uh, you were watching uh, a show called Popeye. We have it today. Uh, and there was a contest, and you had a dream. And what were you told in that dream?
1: Well, like you said, I was raised in a very strongly Christian home and you know knew that God was as real as the clay under my uh, feet at that time uh, in South Alabama. And there was a, a show called The Popeye Show. It was uh, hosted by a Cousin Cliff. He was this um, kind of dressed in a sailor uh, outfit. And they announced one day that uh, they were going to give away a pony uh, to a lucky little boy or girl. And all you had to do was send in a postcard. And I was only about five years old at the time. And of course, you know, for a five year old boy, a pony would be like the best thing that could ever happen in your life, and so my mom, uh, who was a school teacher, decided to use this time to teach us a lesson on how to send out postcards and stamp things and the mail uh, system. So we each uh, were filling out a postcard, and she was going to take us to the post office the next morning. My brother, and my sister, and I, and the night uh that we were before we were to take the cards in I fell asleep with anticipation that I you know might win the pony but then I started dreaming and I dreamed and that God came to me and said Reggie you're going to win this pony but when you win it you're going to have to share it with anybody that wants to ride it and uh I could vividly see myself riding this pony and uh, the next morning, we got to the post office, and I told my mom that she didn't have to take my brother and sister's card in because um, God had told me that I was going to win the pony, and I didn't want them to be disappointed.
0: Now, this—this—you—you you, you didn't come from a charismatic type of home, as a good evangelical home. Uh, this doesn't happen in evangelical circles, where people have dreams and they know what's going to happen in the future. Did your parents try to um, uh, make sure you didn't fall too big, uh, when, you know, be too disappointed, so to speak, uh, and t- try and say, well, there are a lot of people in this contest?
1: Right. That's what exactly what Mom said. She said, don't be disappointed. You You know, you still, if you don't win, you have to know that God is still real. And I said, okay, but He told me, and I'm just going to trust
0: Sounds to me, you you know, Dr. Anderson, it sounds to me you had what the Bible refers to as childlike faith.
1: I agree. I did
0: uh, at that time. Okay, so your family's watching the TV show, and they announced you're the winner. How did they react? How did you react?
1: Well, they all looked at me and, you know, like, well, I know you said that. And But they were still surprised, and I was sort of like, well, I told you, God told me that I was going to win, so why are y'all surprised? So, I mean, it was one of those moments where um, I just knew that, uh, you know, God had spoken into my life at the time. But, you know, we kept that pony all the way until I graduated from high school and then uh, gave it to another family when I went off to college.
0: Now, everything is picture-perfect— uh, until you, you, you spent summers working in a farmer's market. Sometimes it would be 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with a family uh, that were distantly related, but they, they were, the, the, you felt like they were a, a, almost an uncle, a father, a, a close relative because you were with them so much. They were called the Aldis. And uh, during the summer, you were about 15 years of age, it was a tragedy. Uh, it was the worst mass murder, actually, in Georgia history. Your friends, their entire family, they were brutally murdered. Uh, explain the impact. Yeah.
1: I mean, Jimmy and Jerry were like brothers and, and uncles to me at the time. And their family was were family to me. I mean, we were all from a very small community in South Georgia. And, and um, you know, we were all you know, took care of each other. You know, if, if somebody needed help uh, building a barn, then the whole community would come together to have a barn raising. And that's how this community treated each other uh, because we were all, you know, in one big family. We knew that God uh, oversaw everything that we did and that he was our father and that we were all siblings and under the roof of his guidance. And so when the murders happened, it was as if my entire world had crumbled um, and had fallen down on me, and I was devastated. I I could not really understand how a good God could allow such a horrible thing. All six of them murdered, and um, you know even Jerry's wife had been brutally murdered and raped and. You know, at that time, I was 15 years old, and I felt like, you know, God had abandoned us and had left us, and actually to the point where I didn't believe that God existed if this was going to happen in this world.
0: So you, would you say you literally became an atheist at that time?
1: I did. I, I ran as far and as fast as my feet could, tell, could carry me, and, um, you know, I just abandoned the whole concept of God and religion and because it had failed.
0: Okay, so you know, life goes long. You get to college. Uh, you want to be a pilot, but you have a problem with your eyes. You take the dental exam, uh, and uh, that was plan B, and, and and it didn't work out too well, and then you decide to take the exam to be a medical doctor and... A miracle happens. You become um, a—you're accepted, and you're studying to be a medical doctor. And the first crack in atheism occurred uh, when uh, you have your opportunity in anatomy uh, to look at a dead body, a cadaver. uh, And it was a beautiful woman, but something began to work at you. What was that?
1: Well, I looked down, and, you know, we were taught um in— biology that, you know, we were you know, kind of um, the whole idea of evolution, you know, that through a random acts of um, chemistry, uh, we became this being in front of me. But I realized that there was not an explanation because that broke way too many rules of physics, because in physics, they taught us that order became disorderly unless there was a creative force into the system, and so I was there in gross anatomy lab. It was like an epiphany. I, you know, saw the human body. Then I looked at the, you know, the, the eye itself. I mean, I could not explain that. It just happened by accident. It was not a set of randomness. It, there was order to it. Um, so order out of chaos could only happen by a creative God. And that was my first crack in my... Uh...
0: But then it gets even better than that. Wait till you hear about his visit to heaven. And I can't wait to get his book in your hands because it's going to totally demystify, take the fear away from dying. It, it, it is going to answer questions such as he had, and that is, why? Did God allow this horrible tragedy in his life? Uh, You will not be able to put this down. It's so credible. This award-winning medical doctor, Dr. Reggie Anderson's book, it's called Appointments with Heaven. And then my book, Heaven is Beyond Your Wildest Expectation. I have two people that were close, close friends that died. Another medical doctor, Dr. Richard Eby, uh, and and uh, a, a, another friend of mine had the best experiences in heaven, and as only a doctor could, describe what they saw, what it's like, and then a special DVD... In which uh, Dr. Anderson and I answer questions that have been sent in on Facebook as to about heaven, uh, uh, our dogs, our pets in heaven, uh, what happens to babies that are aborted. I mean, amazing answers, these questions, all available for a gift of $40. Call our order only line, 1 800 447 2697 447 Dr. Reggie Anderson is in medical school. Uh, he's become an atheist, and medical school just pushed him over even further, if that's possible, uh, because his God is facts, uh, n- not the God of the Bible. Uh, there was a horrible tragedy in in his life. People that he considered like uncles and, and close relatives. They were actually distant relatives he spent so much time with, were involved in one of the worst uh, mass murders in the history of the state of Georgia. And he he cried out to God, why? And he walked away. He blamed God. He became an atheist. But then in medical school— they're they're examining a dead body, uh, and, and this is an anatomy class. Uh, and he looks at it, and and uh, Reggie, as you said in your book, you looked at at this woman, and you said she's a work of art. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, exactly what I said. I mean, I, it could not have happened by accident. The idea of evolution and random uh, things coming together to uh, make the human being was not possible. I mean, it it broke way too many physical laws to get to that point. I mean, she was beautiful. Even though she was, she, her spirit was no longer there. Her her soul had already been taken, but there her body was that uh, was left behind for us to, you know, examine and to learn As medical students, uh, I had no other explanation than a creative force had made this
0: being in front of me. So God's working on that area of your life, and then you fall in love. You're smitten, a girl by the name of Karen. But there's a problem. This Karen is sold out to Jesus, and she quickly finds out you're not sure she wants you to be saved— but then you overhear hear her speaking to some of her girlfriends. She's talking about you and she's saying, uh, pray for Reggie uh because he's an atheist and he's uh kind of like a stalker. Um so did you kind of just dismiss Karen when you heard that?
1: Well, I you know, as a medical student I've really had um plenty of dates, but this was really the first woman that—our first person that had challenged my life journey as an atheist.
0: Um, and Beyond the fact that you were smitten with her, was she making any sense at that point in your life with her apologetics and her arguments?
1: You know, it was starting to, I guess, bother me as an atheist. Um, you know, I had just spent time in the cadaver lab and had— kind of come to a point that, okay, well, maybe there is a God out there, but I didn't have a personal relationship, and that was really where she was challenging me, was that, you know, I actually told her, I said, you know, she said that one of the reasons she wouldn't date me was because I was not a Christian, and the only thing I could respond to her was that, well, my parents are. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's close that's in the family <laughs> uh, okay I'm going to fast forward you know, because there's so many exciting things uh I mean, he has prayed for so many people as they were passing from this life to the next, and if when you find out the experiences that he had, totally demystify this thing called death or going to heaven uh, but July fourth nineteen eighty Uh, It was a historic date in your life. It changed everything, everything about your life. Dr. Anderson, tell me about it. Absolutely.
1: Well, Karen had challenged me and given me a book uh, called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Um,
0: And I took that. You know, I got that book, too. And I have to tell you, when I read it, my mind was in such a fog. Uh, I mean, being Jewish and uh, uh, having no paradigm on the Bible or anything else that, you know, I read a couple of pages, but that was about it. But what effect did it have on you?
1: Well, I and and he is not the easiest person to read, uh, but I sat down by myself on a camping trip by the fire and I read straight through it and it just, uh, for some reason, my mind was open because Karen had asked me to pray one prayer uh, before I went on this camping trip, that that if God, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. And um, so I was open to the idea that there was a God and that if He was there, He would reveal Himself. So I read straight through Mere Christianity, and my mother had sent uh, a Bible to me when I was in college, and she knew that I was struggling with religion. But um, she sent this Bible that I used more as a book to hold the door open than anything. But uh,
0: <laughs> that's better than most people's homes. They just put it on a bookshelf. But go ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but anyway, I um, read the Gospel of John because uh, that had been recommended as a, a good starting point, and so. As soon as I closed the Bible that evening, I fell asleep and I fell into a deep, deep dream. And in that dream, Jesus came to me and he spoke. He said, "Reggie, why are you running for me? Your friends are here with me in paradise." And I turned and I could, in my dream, I could clearly see Jimmy and Jerry and their entire family. And
0: this was the family that was involved in the mass murder and rape. Uh, Go ahead.
1: And they were all happy and glowing and healed and wanted to be there and no did not want to come back here to earth and um, I knew that that's where I wanted to go and to be with Jesus. He said to me in uh, the next sentence was, "Reggie, if you'll stop running and turn and follow me and listen to my words, all of what I will tell you will come true. And then he began to tell me that I would marry this young lady who wouldn't even go out with me because I was an atheist.
0: And, and uh, a, a, almost a stalker, <laughs> but go ahead. Yes, Exactly.
1: And um, that I would have four children and that I would practice medicine in rural Tennessee. And so I I woke up from this you know mystifying dream, and um, I knew that my life had changed, that my Spiritual chemistry had turned 180 degrees and that I was a new man.
0: Uh, what, what about the, the big thing that caused you to become an atheist, and that was the mass murder of your close friends that you spent so much time with? Uh, what, what were your thoughts about that?
1: Well, I, I could clearly see them, and I knew that they were happier where they were now than where they were then. And I knew that everything had come to pass was for a reason and that God had brought this entire family to his bosom quicker uh, through this tragic event. And there were no more questions about why it happened and, you know, and where was God? God was right there in the midst of it and he quickly took them and they didn't. They did not want to uh, come back to Earth. They wanted to stay there in Paradise, and I knew that
0: at that moment that was the answer. And, and in your book, you say uh, that when you get to Heaven, you'll have the, the, all the answers for why. In the meantime, you saw the fruit of what their life was like, and, and so why should you be grieving now? <laughs>
1: right, exactly. I, mean, I don't want to... Um, Stay here any longer than I have to, but, you know, God has asked me to, you know, be here on earth to continue to minister to others and try to bring more um, into the fold.
0: Dr. Anderson, you had a dream, uh, and I'll call it a dream. Uh, you call it a dream, but I think it was more than a dream. I think that uh, the Holy Spirit literally snatched you into heaven. And as a doctor... What did you observe uh, that I might be interested in knowing?
1: Well, it was more than just an ordinary dream, for sure. I mean, it was more real than my current life, uh, because even—I mean, that happened July 4, 1980. And thinking back on it, um, the time I spent listening to Jesus and to seeing my friends— in paradise, I mean, the colors were more vibrant. Uh, they were more solid. Um, everything was more real. Um, even the smells were uh, fresh and um, like lilac and citrus. Um, the, I mean, everything was um, as if this life is a dream and that was reality because I, that's what I feel like heaven is going to be like. It will. Uh, this current life will pale in comparison.
0: Now, you spend a lot of time uh, talking to people that are about ready to die. Why do you do that? I mean, you, you, you could have uh, all different uh, types of specialties, but you like to pray with people as they're about ready to die.
1: Right. I, you know, before I was had this experience, I— I was just like everybody else. I kind of was, um, death was a mystery and it was somewhat of a frightening mystery and we think of, uh, you know, when you think of something you don't know about, uh, then it it can grow as a bigger uh, fear than it really is. But once I experienced uh, the the, uh, dream, death became my friend because it was my way of getting back to uh, that point where I was with uh, my friends in, he- in heaven.
0: Tell me about your first experience, in, say, even in medical school, with someone dying.
1: Right. The first time after I got back to um, Birmingham, to UAB, and I was a uh, third-year medical student, and one of the jobs of a medical student is to kind of sit with a dying patient and, um, you know, relate to the family, and uh, then go, at the moment of death, uh, retrieve the attending for the official pronouncement. And this gentleman that was in the VA hospital that I was sitting with, I knew he was a Christian because his family had been in and out and praying with him. And even though he didn't say a word, I could still feel like uh, peace had come over the room. And I was sitting there waiting, and it was in the middle of the night, and it's very dark and cold and sterile. Uh, and I watched as he took his last breath, and all of a sudden it was as if a door had been flung open on a spring day. Instead of it being a cold, sterile room, it was a warm inviting room, and there was another presence in the room, and it was as if uh, this man's spirit had been taken up and, uh, and been called forth, and I could feel it as it as he went past me into uh, the realm of heaven.
0: Now, you could feel it. Could you see anything?
1: There was a, a glow, uh, kind of a light, and it was just there briefly, but it, it was definitely, there was something it, uh, that w- had lit up, and there were no no other explanation other than, you know, God had, you know, come and gotten him.
0: Uh, and tell me about the smell.
1: Well, it was again. It was like a spring day. It was a um, kind of a citrus uh, and lilac. It was a flowery, uh, just like you would expect on, on a, a fresh morning.
0: Now, when you when you went to heaven, did it remind you of that?
1: It did, very similar. I mean, not every death is the same, but it is they all have similarities. They all have this sense of. Um, this is where we're supposed to be going, and uh, when the veil parts, um, parts of heaven kind of flow out into the space where I'm standing, and you know I consider it holy ground when I'm with someone when they are are going into um,
0: God's arms. Tell me about your second experience with Irene.
1: Um, she had um, actually come into the emergency room and was uh, had been one of my patients for quite a while was elderly and um came in with signs and symptoms of a heart attack and i knew that she was not going to make it through the night and her family was was very clear that she didn't want heroic measures and uh, so as i was taking her uh walking with her as they were rolling her gurney up to her room she asked me uh, very clearly that if I would stay with her. And I said, sure. And are you afraid? And she says, no, I'm not afraid, but I I wish to have an escort because tonight I'm going to meet Jesus. And I want someone to be with me when I do. So she
0: Now, now is that unusual for a Christian to know this is the night, so to speak, or have you seen that before?
1: I've seen it several times since then, um, even just Christmas week, I had a um, an event that was very similar to this.
0: Now, when she she was went to heaven, and you were escorting it, I, I assume that means holding her hand, right? So, tell me more about that.
1: Well, I mean, the same sort of event. I mean, as she took her last breath, um, instead of this cold, dark, sterile room, uh, the room lit up again, and. She was able to uh, be taken up, and and I was part of this party.
0: Right, but let me be practical. Uh, sometimes medical equipment will light up. How do you know it wasn't that?
1: Well, the, all of her equipment had been turned off because she was not to be resuscitated, so there were no beeping lights or any of those sort of things.
0: What do you feel like when someone leaves Uh, their, uh, you call it their temporary earth shell. What's going on inside of you?
1: Well, I feel like um, somewhat of a midwife of souls. So I feel like uh, I've helped someone be escorted to heaven. I feel a little disappointed that I don't get to go with him. And um, I'm sitting there as as the party is over, kind of, um, you know, sweeping up the confetti and and talking to the family about how, you know, God has, um, you know, really been a part of this person's life and how he is now a bigger part of their forever life.
0: Now, something else has been going on with you, which I think is fabulous for a medical doctor, and that is your hands naturally are cool. However, when you touch a part of the body that needs medical help, which you might not know, uh, let's suppose someone has a problem with their lung, when you hand, run your hand over by where their lung is, what happens to your hands?
1: You know, if there is something going wrong, um, my hands start to warm up. I feel a sense that, you know, it, it guides me. Uh, it gives me a, a intuition of disease and something. is.
0: Well, give me a a real example, like the friend of your mother.
1: I shook hands with this lady and, uh, you know, then I asked uh, if if she was uh, feeling okay. And she says, yeah, she was just a little tired. I said, well, you might want to go to your doctor and ask him to check your, you know, for thyroid, uh, because I think something is going wrong with your endocrine system. And Sure enough, a few weeks later, mom reported that her friend had gone to her doctor and, you know, she had hypothyroidism. Even though there weren't too many outward signs, I just felt like um, something, you know, after I touched her, that something
0: was going wrong. But it's not just touch. Sometimes you'll just blurt something out of your mouth. For instance, tell me about the uh, uh, the uh, the boy that came in who had, had fallen and he bumped his head.
1: Yeah, he he was sitting in, it was in the middle of the night, and his mother had brought him in just to get him checked out because he had bumped his head earlier in the evening. And so he was sitting in his mom's lap, and as most little boys, uh, you know, at that age in the middle of the night, when a doctor comes in, they kind of get a little frightened. So all of his responses were normal. You know, I looked at him, I examined him, did a neuro check, and they were all perfectly normal. And the nurses had actually pulled out a sheet, uh, an instruction sheet to give to the mom about you know what to watch for in case things changed. And I was in the process of fixing um, to hand her the instruction sheet to be discharged back home and to bring him back if anything changed. But instead of handing her the sheet and saying those words, I said, I think your little boy needs to go to Vanderbilt and get a CT of his head.
0: Now, we're out of time, but bottom line, if he hadn't done that, he would have died. Right. So let me tell you something. When you—this is one of the most credible witnesses you will ever hear, and he's probably prayed with more people that were ready to die and experienced heaven and hell, I might add— while they died, his book is called A Point with Heaven. We're combining it with my book, the 10 best testimonies of people that have died and gone to heaven. It's called Heaven is Beyond Your Wildest Expectation and a special DVD in which uh, Dr. Anderson and I answer your questions about heaven, all available for a gift of $40. If you know someone that's an agnostic or atheist, you better get this book in their hands quick. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697. 2697 Dr. Anderson, you talk about something called parting of the veil. What does that mean?
1: Well, I, I feel like when uh, God comes to a uh, find us in our last few breaths, that the veil pulls back and uh, heaven actually pours into the room with us uh, at that moment. And uh, it's a very special, holy moment. Uh,
0: Pick one of the people you were holding hands with uh, that this happened and tell me about them.
1: Well, I was actually, this is a lady that I had been treating for diabetes and high blood pressure for many years and um, she came in complaining of chest pain and so I admitted her to the hospital and diagnosed uh, that she had was having a heart attack and I told her that we needed to send her to the cardiologist and have a heart cath and so we sent her in and about four or five hours later, the cardiologist called me, and I was fully expecting him to give me a, a report of how successful everything had been. But instead, he told me that uh, Eunice had actually died on the table, and I was very sad at the moment uh, when he said that because she had been a special lady, and I wasn't able to be you know, at, at the uh, moment of her death. I wasn't there. I was at another but he went on to tell me that instead of her dying, actually they did CPR and uh, had um, he had actually quit. But he had a resident that was working with him that wanted to practice for another hour uh, his CPR techniques. And after two hours of CPR, she actually started uh, breathing. And
0: now, now, how many hours was she dead?
1: Two hours.
0: Now, when you're saying, as a medical doctor, she was dead, uh, is is that a fact? She really was dead?
1: Yeah, I mean, the cardiologist said she had no heartbeat except for the chest compressions. She had no blood circulating uh, on her own. They were doing complete CPR, had intubated her, were breathing for her. And if at any moment, if they had stopped during that process, that there was no beat be no return
0: so why did they continue as long as they did
1: well like I said the resident wanted to um, practice some of the techniques of uh, doing CPR and so the uh, attending agreed that he could continue the process uh, beyond the first you know 45 minutes to an hour in which they attempted to revive her
0: okay so she's in this vegetative state so to speak uh, nothing can be done medically. He's uh, experimenting, as you said, to, to get practice. And what happens?
1: Well, her heart starts beating, and they move her to the ICU. She's on a ventilator overnight, and he called me uh, and said that, you know, he wasn't really expecting her to come back, uh, that he felt like she would be brain dead if she did have any sort of um, – she he actually wanted to know if uh, she had left a, a living will about organ donation, but uh, the next morning I was expecting the um, them to give me a report that she had actually died, and um, but instead they called me from the ICU and said that she had woke up and they had taken her off the ventilator, and that she had one of the first things she wanted to do was to have me come to her bedside. And so I drove into uh, Nashville to this other hospital and with my wife, and I walked into the ICU and walked up to her bedside, and she looked up at me, and she says, I have to tell you the most wonderful experience.
0: Before you tell me that, as a doctor, I must ask you this. Is there any possible medical explanation as to why she was alive? Anything? Uh, no, As a
1: doctor, I would have never, um, you know, in all of my medical training, would have said that she was gone, you know, but um, for whatever reason. Uh, well, I consider it a miracle that she uh, woke up the next morning.
0: Okay. What did she say when you met her?
1: She said, Dr. Anderson, I I have something to tell you.
0: Now, by the way, as a doctor, you observe things. What she look like? When, when she said
1: she that was glowing and radiant <laughs> she was like she was back to her normal i mean she was elderly and she was frail but she
0: she should have been in the dirt <laughs> you know, she really was glowing
1: yeah and she was vibrant i mean i was shocked by how well she looked uh, it was as well as she had ever looked in in My knowledge of seeing her over the years.
0: Now, what did she tell you? Did she have any remembrance of what happened when she was dead?
1: She did. She actually uh, told me that she had been there with Jesus and that she had been with her family, and she wanted to stay there, but Jesus told her that he wanted her to come back, and she had a few... um, Things that he wanted her to do, and one of them was to talk to me.
0: To you, what did Jesus want her to tell you?
1: Well, at the time we had four children, we were living in a very rural area, and had considered moving to another um, city so that our children would have better educational opportunities. And so we had been in prayer about that for several months, and but this lady didn't know that. But she said, I don't know why Jesus wants me to tell you, but you need to stay right where you are doing right what you're doing. And um, I said, okay. And that was my answer to
0: that prayer. Now, I've heard of prophetic words, but this is (laughs) off the charts, Reggie.
1: (laughs) I know. I was somewhat uh, taken aback by it, but uh, I did know that, you know, God had used her to help us stay where we were.
0: And uh, did she say anything about her experience in heaven that was similar to yours?
1: It was. I mean, she said it was the greenest green and the brightest bright lights. And, I mean, the colors were so vibrant that it almost hurt your eyes. And um,
0: I could totally understand that. Now, you've also been with people that have died and not gone to heaven. For instance... Tell me about Eddie.
1: He um, lived a very hard life. Uh, he constantly was in and out of bars and bar fights and abused his family both physically and verbally and sexually and um, you know the only time I encountered him really was uh, mostly in the emergency room stitching him up from another fight. Um, so I knew that his life uh, was not. A very good spiritual life, and uh, so one uh, one moment uh, he came in, and this is um, a gentleman that i had you know seen off and home for years, but he um, came in they called a nine one one gunshot wound to the head, and he had attempted suicide and they brought him in and I was thinking that he was going to die but instead uh he he came back um and was in rehab trying to get you know uh fixed uh from his gunshot wound to his head and I saw him a few months later in the office and instead of this uh mean cruel man he uh he actually turned his life, um, back around and was, um, very appreciative. He said that God had met him that night in the emergency room.
0: What did he see? What did he tell you he saw?
1: He said that he saw a horrible thing that he did not want to be a part of and, uh, that he turned his life back around and that he knew that God had uh, given him a second chance. And from that moment on, he, uh, Uh, has been nothing but the most pleasant guy. I mean, it's like um, night and day. It's like a light had come on in his head.
0: Now, when he told you this story, uh, you smelled something. What was that?
1: Yeah, I mean, initially uh, in the emergency room, I, I smelled this almost like a sulfur and a burning sensation. So,
0: Had you ever smelled that before?
1: Um, there was one other situation um, earlier where a, a gentleman of similar character was dying of cancer, and he um, did not want us to do anything to revive him, and he said that all we all he wanted was a, for us to, you know, work on his cancer and take care of his pain. But um, as he was taking his last breath, it was as if evil had entered that room, and um you know, so I had smelled that same sensation earlier.
0: So you can tell whether someone's going to heaven or hell by uh, what's going on with, this, with your senses. Oh, yeah. It, I, I'll tell you what, we're out of time right now, but you are not going to want to put this book down. And by the time you finish it, you will not be fearful of death. You will not be concerned about loved ones that have died and, uh, and what they're what they're experiencing in heaven. You will not ask questions like, "Why God did this thing happen or that tragedy happen?" The book is called "Appointments with Heaven." We're packaging it with my book, "Heaven is Beyond Your Wildest." expectations, the 10 best testimonies of people that have died and gone to heaven and reported about what they said, two were very personal friends of mine, then a DVD in which Dr. Anderson and I answer those really questions that have been plaguing you about heaven. And we're going to cover some of the most important questions, all three items available for a gift of $40.00 it is a must to demystify death. Call our order-only line, 1-800-447-2697, 447 2697 Tell me about uh, the vision you had of your dad, who had died.
1: Well, um, my father was an elderly man of, about 82. And he was very, very sick. And I was one of the doctors involved in taking care of him because he had been transferred over to the small hospital uh, for rehab. And I was the only doctor on staff uh, at that time. And Dad um, either needed more transfusions to keep him alive or make a choice of not doing anything and he would be uh, going to heaven shortly. And I was struggling with this whole concept of, you know, take, being my the son or taking care of my father as a doctor. And so I told Karen I was um, having trouble, you know, being his doctor and making medical decisions uh, at the same time as trying to be his son. And so I went to sleep uh, that night, praying that God would you know, give me peace. And so I fell into a deep sleep again and started dreaming, and I saw this cathedral in front of me. I was walking up this path, and I walked through the doors into the narthex, and I looked up and to the right, and there was construction workers working on this new addition to this cathedral. And, there was a man at the top of the stairs and he was given instructions on what to do and where to sand and what to paint. And, and I walked to the bottom of the stairs and I spoke to him and I said, hello, how are you? And the young man turned and he was my father, but instead of being an 82-year-old, he was 30. And he smiled at me and I knew exactly what he was doing. He was there overseeing the construction of his room, uh, his room in the mansion that was to be uh, where he would be, and was filled with everything he loved. I mean, there were fish swimming in the pool of water. Um, There was um, everything he loved, and there was a sense of baking bread, and um, I just felt like this is his home. I mean, this is his room. In our forever home, and so I woke up from that dream, and I was elated, and I told Karen about it, and I felt like, you know, I can let my father go, because I know that my real father, my spiritual father, God Almighty, was preparing a place for him, and that he would uh, be in, in the arms of Jesus real soon.
0: Uh, Reggie, throughout the entire interview I've done with you, I felt an amazing presence of God. And the best way I can describe it is peace. Is that what you were feeling after that dream? Absolutely.
1: There's nothing more peaceful than whenever we are able to be with Jesus.
0: Okay, there are people listening to us right now. Maybe they didn't have the same tragedy you had in your life. I mean, (laughs) two of your best friends, they were almost family to you. Uh, They were murdered. The wife was murdered uh, in in a very brutal fashion, and you turned your back on God. There are many people that have experienced tragedy. To be human is to experience tragedy. Uh, What advice do you have for them?
1: Well, I'm also— very closely re, uh, related to Steve, Stephen Curtis Chapman and Mayor Beth and the tragic events surrounding their life with Maria's passing. Um, we were very involved in that, and the one
0: thing that No one of the as I understand it from having read about it in the newspapers, uh, one of the sons uh, backed over and killed the youngest daughter.
1: Yes, it was an accident in their, in their yep. uh, driveway. And so in that tragic event uh, can devastate a family. Uh, But what I noticed that was different rather than like I did as a teenager during the tragic events surrounding my friends being murdered and I'm running from God, we as a family, the Chapmans and the Andersons, ran toward God. And God opened his arms and he helped heal us instead of us, you know, I mean, we still miss Maria uh, even to this day, but we know exactly where she is because God has opened so many doors to let us uh, view uh, the special places where uh, she is. He's given us breadcrumbs of uh, hints of where she is. And so we, we are all anticipating that moment where our time of uh, the veil parting and us being able to be reunited with our loved
0: ones. Uh, you, you say that we basically have two choices when tragedy occurs. What are they?
1: Well, we can either run from God or we can run toward God. And running toward God gives us a whole lot more peace and healing than we, than the uh, opposite.
0: I, I am just so fascinated with the whole concept the wonderful concept of when a real Christian dies, um, and you've been with hundreds, you've held their hands as their spirit leaves their body. Uh, tell me about uh, the, the the person that collapsed on the tennis court.
1: Right. I was, uh, the children were doing swimming lessons at a athletic uh, um, place, that, uh, and I would go in and I would work out. And so I walked in that day, And the person at the front desk said, aren't you a doctor? And I said, yes. And they said, well, that man just collapsed on the tennis court. And so I ran straight toward him, and two other men met me there simultaneously. And uh, I introduced myself. I said, I'm an ER doctor, and we need to do CPR. Do you know anything about how to resuscitate anybody? And one was a cardiologist, and one was an anesthesiologist. So this man collapsed in front of three well-trained doctors. And even though it was not the best place to uh, do CPR, we all three uh, took our our specialties and uh, performed uh, CPR on the tennis court. And then the ambulance came, and we um, shocked his heart, got it back uh, in rhythm, and the cardiologist took him to uh, uh, the hospital he worked at, and did they did four vessel bypass on the gentleman. So two weeks after uh, the gentleman was in the hospital uh, getting his heart surgery, the wife came to my uh, home and brought a gift of uh, a glass heart in a basket. And uh, I said, I don't expect any gifts, she says to me says, yeah, but you gave me a gift back. Uh, you gave my husband back to to me for a short time. And I said, no, I didn't, but God allowed uh, three doctors to be there in a miraculous way to, uh, to bring him back. And uh, she says, well, I just wanted to thank you because we've spent the last few weeks reminiscing over our life, and we hope to have whatever time God gives us uh, left together here on earth, we're going to spend telling others about Jesus.
0: What would you say to someone that says, I know I'm a Christian, I know I'll be in heaven, but I am so fearful of death?
1: You know, there's nothing to fear because of the places I've been. Everyone that I have experienced the opening of the veil with have looked up and smiled as Jesus took them. So I would just you know, encourage you to continue to read Scripture about how heaven uh, opens its doors. And uh, there's nothing to fear because, uh, you know, it is the most amazing place that we we're going to spend forever in.
0: Now, your book is really brand new, but what kind of feedback are you getting from uh, your book called Appointments with Heaven?
1: I'm getting some really great feedback, uh, both from Christians and from non-Christians. From atheists, have actually uh, written me and and have expressed, uh, you know, kind of a crack in their uh, um, belief system of uh, that maybe there is something else out there. And so, and that's what I'm hoping for. I, I uh, was hoping that you know non-believers as well as believers would pick this book up and realize that there is a God.
0: That he loves us greatly. Okay, his book, Appointments with Heaven, my book, the 10 top interviews I've done over a lifetime of people that have died and come back to report what heaven is like, and one, even what hell was like, those two books, plus a special DVD in which Dr. Anderson and I answer the hardest, most difficult questions you have about heaven. All three available for a gift of $40. Now this is the Shabbat broadcast. I want to pray over you but before I pray over you I command you if I had the right to come to your senses and make Jesus your Lord. He loves you so much that he died for every one of your sins. So when you believe that he did that, then you have nothing separating you from access to God, nothing separating you from being in heaven. But you have to, of your own free will, say, Jesus, I know you died for my sins, and I believe leave you rose from the dead and i ask you to be my lord forgive me of my sins come inside use your own words you know how to do it come home shabbat broadcast. the lord has already blessed you the lord he's already smiled upon you the lord he's already surrounded you with his favor The Lord has already gifted you. You're loaded with gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Lord has given you His shalom, His peace, His completeness in your spirit, in your soul, and in your body. In the name of the Tsar shalom, the Prince of Peace, Yeshua HaMashiach Tzichenu, Jesus the Messiah, our righteousness.
1: er adunae fana belakha
0: vi To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. To receive a complimentary copy of our bi-monthly teaching newsletter, materials catalog, or information about becoming mishpocha or Khalitzim, write to me, Sidroth, Post Office Box 39222 Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. To place a credit card order, call anytime, 1-800-447-2697. For all other calls, the number is 704-943-6500. That's 704-943-6500. For a CD of this week's broadcast... Send a donation to Sid Roth, that's S-I-D-R-O-T-H, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.